What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Loneliness has followed me my whole life. Everywhere. Bars and cars. Sidewalks, stores, everywhere. There's no escape. God's lonely man. Hey, Travis, at least you can still go to bars. I haven't been to one in a year. Well, there's the home variety, Josh. That's Robert De Niro as God's lonely man, Travis Bickle, in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, which celebrates its 45th anniversary this year. We revisit Scorsese's grimy urban masterpiece this week as part of our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series. Plus 1942's This Gun for Hire with Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd. It's the second film in our 40s noir marathon. That and more. Go milk a duck. Okay, then. Ahead on film spotting. <laughs> Welcome to film spotting. Josh, Marty Scorsese doesn't have to worry about Taxi Driver getting axed from film spotting madness. Best of the 80s. That can wait until next year. Please, please tell me you and Sam have not started making brackets for next oh, year already. Film spotting madness 2022 best of the 70s is well underway. <laughs> Sickness. It's a sickness. It is. Scorsese, though, does have a couple of other titles in this year's tourney. We'll talk round two of Madness later in the show, which has Scorsese's King of Comedy up against a little film called The Empire Strikes Back. I don't know how well Rupert Pupkin is going to do against the likes of Darth Vader and Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. What do you think, Josh? That's, Is that your Scorsese laugh? That's my Scorsese pretend it's a city laugh. Better better or worse than my friend Leibowitz? You tell no, me. No, I, I, I think it's better. Okay. Well done. Good. Podcast listeners will get our thoughts on the results from round one of Madness, and we'll look at those round two matchups. Radio listeners, you can always get the full version of this show at filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcasts. And yes, this week, the second movie. In our 40s noir marathon, it's 1942's This Gun for Hire. But first, we return to our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series. We started this series a couple of years ago with the 20th anniversary of the 1999 movie year. Then last year, we had our 8 from 84 series. So this year, we're focusing on 1976, a year that gave us maybe the most stacked best picture race ever. You've got All the President's Men, Network, Rocky, and this week's subject, Taxi Driver. We've already talked about all the president's men, and we've confirmed at least three confirmations. Got it all on the record, Adam, that it is indeed great. Let's get into Taxi Driver with a clip. Yeah? Well, I know you and I ain't talked too much, you know? Yeah. But I figure you've been around a lot, so you could... Yeah, shoot, that's why they call me the wizard. I got... It's just that I got a... I got a... Things got you down? Yeah. Yeah, it happens to the best of them. Yeah, it got me real down, real. I just want to go out and, and, you know, like really, really, really do something. Taxi life, you mean? Yeah, well, nah, it's, I don't know. I just want to go out I really, you know, I really want to 
got some bad ideas in my head. I just... So Taxi Driver, released in February of 1976, it won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival that May and went on to become the 17th highest grossing film of the year, nominated for four Oscars, including Best Picture. Scorsese himself, however, not nominated for Best Director. That didn't happen until Raging Bull. The screenwriter of Taxi Driver, Paul Schrader, also not nominated. However, Robert De Niro and Jodie Foster, they both got acting nods, along with a posthumous nomination for composer Bernard Herrmann, who died shortly after completing the score. Now, Adam, I'm not even going to try to compete with your brilliant recent Silence of the Lambs setup where you played Hannibal Lecter. Instead, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to steal a question that our producer Sam posed about Taxi Driver in this week's Film Spotting newsletter. And if you want to get that weekly email from Sam, just sign up at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. In it, he asked listeners, would Travis Bickle have participated in the January 6th Capitol riot? Now, I'll admit this wasn't on my mind as I contemplated revisiting Taxi Driver, but it should have been. In my book, Movies Are Prayers, I included Taxi Driver, along with another best year ever title that we've considered, 1999's Fight Club, in the chapter on movies as prayers of anger. Anger, I'd say a particularly male, white, American anger, was definitely on display by those who attacked the Capitol building. And yeah, it's probably one of the defining qualities of Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle. So I'm really curious to hear what you think of Sam's question, Adam. Do you also see some similarities between what happened earlier this year in D.C. and what we see in Taxi Driver? And are there maybe some important distinctions we should also consider? Hmm. Well, I do think Taxi Driver poses a bit of a challenge if you try to suggest that it's too timely or speaks to our current situation because, one— This is a movie that is so distinctly a 1970s movie (laughs) made in 1970s New York. And there is specific content within the film that covers that sort of social and political malaise that we all identify with America in the 1970s. Palatine's message when he's giving his rallies definitely is touching on that. Even stylistically, Josh, the end of the film and... I didn't have a chance to fully verify all this. I'm going off of my notes from the last time we talked about this movie here on the show. It was myself and Slate's Dana Stevens on the movie's 35th anniversary. So 10 years ago, April 2011, we talked about it. But the reason why you get that really jarring shift in the way the film actually looks at the end, when all the violence and bloodshed is happening, I believe has something to do with them having to desaturate it and make it somehow less gory to appease the MPAA or something. So you've got that aspect, which probably wouldn't happen today if Taxi Driver was being released. And the film is also so completely told from Travis's point of view that whether or not Travis is representative of some larger disillusionment and anger is really almost impossible to gauge. I mean, even these rallies that Palantine's at, it's not like there's a ton of people in the crowd. The other cabbies that he interacts with, they don't seem to really be of a similar political mindset or bent at all. He is unique, and Taxi Driver is unique. But I'm going to give you here a contradiction that I think is fitting for a movie that is full of them. I did on this viewing find it 
more timely than ever. And yet somehow I didn't connect with it. I didn't connect with the material the same way I did 10 years ago. And maybe that's because I saw it on the big screen. Then it was re-released for that anniversary and when the Blu-ray came out. So I actually got to see it. And it felt like the first time because it had been so long since I had previously seen the film. Certainly I had my full attention on the film in the theater versus the distractions and the burnout that come with watching things at home these days. But maybe, Josh, it gets back to your question. Maybe the disconnect for me this time, which let me be clear still saying it's a great film. But maybe the reason it didn't quite resonate with me as much this time is related to that timeliness. Not that I'm any more or less sympathetic towards Travis Bickle here 10 years later. I don't know where you even start with the sympathy question with Travis Bickle. But with Dana in 2011, I made the point that, you know, Travis doesn't hate Palatine, even though obviously he plans to assassinate him. There's this larger kind of sense of alienation on his part that he is he is tapping into. And maybe that's what frustrates him so much is that there's this sense of futility and he needs a target. He needs someone to take it out on. And I said then that today we're so divided culturally and politically, the Bickles out there can easily find a target to take down. I actually invoked Jared Lee Loeffner back in that review in Arizona, 2011, ended up killing six people, I think, and shot U.S. Representative Gabby Giffords. And that seems almost quaint now, Mm. doesn't it? Me invoking that figure. Ten years later, our cultural and political divide is obviously that chasm has just grown. We've got the racial unrest that has been heightened over the past year or two. And then you've got those insurrectionists you mentioned storming the Capitol. I mean, on some level, yes, aren't they all Travis Bickle? And then you factor in, too, how much of Travis's rage is driven not only by racial animus, but also anger towards women, which that's very clear as well. But Sam also not only gave you great fodder for your setup, he made a great comment to me in our Slack, which was, you know, Travis Bickle in 1976 was really dangerous, but at least he was isolated. You know, I mentioned his community, if you will. It was just those other cabbies, and he has nothing in common with them, and they don't really seem to want to hang out with him much either. But now, as Sam pointed out, everything he's engaging in, whether it's the the porn, the journal writing, the stalking, that's all just moved online, mm-hmm. in Sam's words, over the last half century, right? So he's no longer a dangerous loner. Again, these are Sam's words. I want to get them right because they're very eloquent. Now, instead of being a dangerous loner, he can join a community of dangerous loners. And again, it's not really for me about whether I'm more or less sympathetic to this gun-toting incel, but maybe I am a little fatigued. The weight of the damage done by damaged people like Travis has worn me out to the point where I'm a little less enamored with the filmmaking and the boldness of the vision. And I'll just say too, you know, we talk about some of this high-minded stuff and that, that disillusionment and alienation. The reality is that Schrader has scripted something pretty elemental here, which is maybe why it's ultimately so profound and revealing still so many years later. Our friend Brett Merriman out in L.A. quoted Paul Schrader's comments from an interview in his Letterbox review where Schrader said, the script is simple. The girl he wants, he can't have. And the girl he can't have, he doesn't want. So he tries to kill the father of the first girl and fails, but succeeds in killing the father of the second girl. That's about it, Paul Schrader says. But it is, right? Palatine is a revenge target because of Betsy's rejection, and Sport is a revenge target because of Iris's illicit and unnatural acceptance, which he can't deal with. So 
I don't know if I got around to answering your question or not. There are certainly things about it that make it distinct and make it feel uniquely of its time and make Travis Bickle feel uniquely of his time. And then there's so much about it that feels so relevant today, sadly. I understand the weariness you you might have experienced with this because the realities that it showcases have be, have ballooned and have become more in our face. And to be honest, here's a distinction. Um, someone like Travis, if he had popped up in the last four years, would have been emboldened by those holding the highest office in the land. And so that's a mm-hmm. distinction as well. It's almost like Palantine you know, would in his stump speeches would be encouraging Travis. That's a distinction, right? That's different. And Josh, real quick, to your point, Palatine does interact with him earlier in the film before maybe Travis has has gotten full on into the headspace he ends up in. But interestingly, he he embraces him until he starts to sound really crazy. <laughs> but he's still kind of like he's still he still kind of walks that line where he, he lets does. Travis hear what he wants to hear. That's right. Um, and in recent years. It's not even kind of like trying to split those hairs. It's just nope. been, I know this is what you want to hear. I'm going to feed it to you and foment yeah. these things. Um, so that's a distinction to Sam's point, which is very good about Travis going online. I would add that imagine Travis Bickle not watching um, Soul Train or whatever it was on his television all day or soap operas, but watching Fox News or Newsmax or listening yeah. to Rush Limbaugh all day, every day. Um, and, and feeding that into his psyche as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that you, anyone, um, concerned about what's been happening over the past couple of years, watches taxi driver now, and it feels a lot closer. Um, it feels less like an isolated incident. Um, Travis is not unique. This is what we've sadly discovered. Um, and, and what these online communities have have showed us is that Travis Bickle is not unique. There are a lot of Travis Bickles out there, some who will go as far as he went in terms of actual violence. Um, and, you know, that we've we have also learned in reports a lot of different people were part of that attack on the Capitol. So it, it's it's simplistic to just lay Travis Bickle on top of all of them. But I think there are a lot of similarities. You've mm-hmm. touched on some of them, the anger, the racial motivation, the idea of looking for a target um, and politicians make easy targets. You know, that's uh, that is um, why he can shift his animosity toward Palantine, who previously he was going to support because he wanted to get close to Betsy. Right. And, and that's that's another thing in common. Um, on the day at the Capitol, Blue Lives Matter until they didn't, <laughs> you know, because the ideology wasn't yeah. what was driving a lot of those folks. It wasn't any sort of principle. It was the anger um, that was driving them. And the fact that, like Travis, they believe they were acting on the side of justice. You know, he sees himself as this angel of justice throughout the movie. And interestingly, the way the film ends, which I do want to get back to and spend a little time mm-hmm. on that, he's... Again, emboldened in that the the media portrays him in in the reports that uh, and we could talk about whether that's in his head or not. But what we're presented with is the media portrays him as this savior. So. So, yeah, definitely resonates in a lot of ways um, uh, that are that are tiring. I think the thing that stood out to me this time was how much of the dent in the collective cultural consciousness that Taxi Driver has made, I I would used to think like it was the violence, it was Scorsese's filmmaking, which we'll get to, uh, and some of the other craftsmanship. I think it's all De Niro's performance. I think if you had anyone other than De Niro in this part, um, Taxi Driver would have been, you know, maybe a 1970s gritty curiosity that Mm -hmm. would have 
uh, a lot of admirers for the craftsmanship that's on display. I don't think it would have rocked the film world. Um, De Niro is just astounding here. The defining characteristic for me watching this again um, that he brings to Travis Bickle is that the guy is assaultive. He is assaultive in every instance, even when he's talking to the manager applying for the job to drive a taxi. His grin, his grin mm-hmm. is just, it's like two degrees too smiley, right? Yes. Uh, or when he's at that rally, he goes right up to the security agent in the sunglasses. He's way Gets too space. way too familiar with him, stares yeah. right through the guy's sunglasses, like to make eye contact. Mm-hmm. When he's watching TV, the way he slowly pushes it over till it falls, there's an assaultive nature of this. And one thing I caught at him on a revisit, this is all set up. By an early throwaway gesture, no idea if De Niro, you know, improvised this or whatever, but he's done interviewing at the taxi garage. He's walking out. Another taxi is pulling in past him and he gives it as he walks past a little punch. He just punches the taxi. And that is how the guy lives. He's always imagining that everything he encounters needs to be punched. But why? Because it's done something to him. And that tech, who knows what he thinks about that taxi? Maybe it pulled too close to him, but it right. deserved a punch. When he when he is sitting in the coffee shop with other cab drivers and one of them just asks him, how's it hanging? His instinct is to look at the guy like he insulted his mother and he right. gives it a few pauses and, and then says, what's that? He's looking yeah. He's always looking for something to punch. Um, And then and then the you know, the the level beneath that De Niro gives this is, of course, the loneliness, the phrase he says, being God's lonely man. um, You know, that's we'll get to the I'm the only one here scene, I'm sure. But I want to talk about that in the context of this idea of loneliness, because I think the brilliance of De Niro's performance is that and maybe this is your sympathy question, too, that you were wondering about. I, I always felt that loneliness underneath, the, the burden he felt as God's lonely man, the only sure. guy on earth he feels who sees what's happening and is going to do something about it. Listen, you f***ers, you screwheads, here is a man who would not take it anymore, who would not let... Listen, you f***ers, you screwheads, here is a man who would not take it anymore, a man who stood up against the scum, the the dogs, the filth, the shit. Here is someone who stood up. Here is... You're dead. I think the loneliness is so crucial because it's there underscoring every aspect of Travis's life, but also almost every aspect of the film. If you think about Iris... Jodie Foster's character, the young prostitute, and what she needs from the Harvey Keitel pimp character, what Sybil Shepard's character is doing, having any involvement whatsoever with someone who's clearly a little disturbed, like Travis is, but it's because she, she does need some kind of connection herself, even. It's there, I think, in every aspect of this film. And in terms of what stood out to me this time, and I looked at my notes from 2011, obviously, after I saw the film, and two of the big things I focused on were still really prominent and wonderful this time. And I'll save them as we get a little bit more into the craft, but it's the score. The Bernard Herrmann score, his final score, and the cinematography, some of the stylistic choices, but specifically Michael Chapman's work. But the other big thing was, yeah, believe it or not, Robert De Niro's performance, because I think 
all the previous times I watched this movie, I sort of just took it for granted. And even in that review in 2011, Josh, I took it for granted. Didn't really spend any time on it because, in fairness, we were doing our top five Robert De Niro scenes on that show. So I was like, okay, well, we'll just we'll just save it. And I did put a taxi driver scene in that top five. But De Niro's performance for me this time was the magic. And the scene I picked back in 2011, my number three De Niro scene was actually the one where he goes to volunteer. And he kind of asks out Sybil Shepherd for the first time. It just does catch you so off guard because he seems there to actually be trying to make a meaningful connection and seems somewhat normal in the way he's going about it. And he actually has the nerve to ask her out. And De Niro's got to do some heavy lifting there because we know a lot about that character that Betsy doesn't know. And in order for us to believe that he's going to get her to actually even just go around the corner and have coffee with him, it's got to be something in his performance. And I think there's an earnestness and there's a conviction that she can't deny. Hi. I'd like to volunteer. Great. I'll take you right over That's here. That's all right. I'd rather volunteer to her if you don't mind. And why do you feel that you have to volunteer to me? Because I think that you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Thanks. But what do you think of Palantine? Uh, well, I think... Charles Palantine, the man you're volunteering to help elect presidents. I'm sure he'll make a good president. I don't know exactly what his policies are, but I'm sure he'll make a good one. You said that he's assaultive, and that's accurate, but it's this assaultive style that's mixed with an earnestness, and an earnestness that then crosses over into complete uneasiness and awkwardness, and you're right, it's that off-putting smile. The scene with the manager he was applying to this time was one that stood out to me as well, and the moment I loved in particular is when Everything's going pretty well up until this point, and he makes a joke. He tries to crack a joke. He tries to do what normal people do, Josh. He makes a joke, and he says, my driving record's clean, like my conscience. And now the guy turns on him. What are you doing? You, you, you busting my balls? And that smile, that completely obnoxious smile that is too big, then turns immediately to consternation. And and he knows that he's he's now being punished. And... Like I said, he just tried to do what he thinks normal people do, tried to make a little connection, tried to engage in some small talk, and he's instantly rebuked by it. And I think that he's so unhinged, but there's a sincerity to it that De Niro conveys that makes Bickle fascinating. It's not only the smile, it's the little fidgets, it's the physicality, like the punch of the taxi cab you mentioned. And then the scene where if you do feel for Travis at all, the scene where I think it is most blatant. At least it was for me on this rewatch. I wonder if there was a scene for you. But it's when he takes Betsy to the porno theater. And she gets so mad at him. And he's apologizing. And if you think about what he even says, even when they're walking in and she questions it, he says, no, couples, I see couples here all the time. Again, it's like, this is normal behavior. He thinks it's normal behavior. And everything he's doing with her is an approximation as best as he can do of what he thinks a man should do with a woman on a date. And yes, he's dangerous and you see that forming, but he's so confused and so lost and he wants to please her so much that you really do see the hurt. He's not hurt because he can't believe she doesn't like his choice. He's hurt because 
he had no idea she wouldn't like his choice. And there's a moment I'd never really paid attention to before with them. I think she lobs this at him as she's going away. Remember earlier, she says that he reminds her a little bit of Chris Christopherson. So what does he do? He goes to the record store and he buys a Chris Christopherson record. And watching it this time, I'd forgotten about it. I thought, yeah, that's so relatable. Who hasn't done that? Like you're interested in somebody and you find out what their favorite movie is or their favorite song or performer is. You want to understand what kind of makes them tick. You want to speak the same language. You're going to start loving the things they love. Except that's not what he did. He bought it for her. Right. He, he somehow thinks that even though she's already said she's a fan of his and she probably owns the record already. I think she says to him, I already have it. I wished you kept it for yourself. That's he what, didn't even bother to listen to it. He admits. That's exactly right. Yeah. It didn't occur to him to listen to right. it. Broken record player or not, he's he's just so focused on trying to please her and going through those motions that it, of course, blows up in his face. But he's not actually interested in expanding like, right. his understanding of the world at all. No, that's what it is, going through the motions. How much of his life is going through the societal motions he's observed but doesn't quite know how to genuinely engage in himself. Yes. Um, I'll give you a scene that jumped out to me where there's some sympathy for for Travis Bickle. And actually, this will give me an example to talk about the filmmaking, too, the choices Scorsese made. But there's a moment after the date where he's trying to get Betsy back, and he's on a payphone in a hallway of a building. A payphone is on the wall, and the scene begins with him in the center of the screen Mm -hmm. talking on the phone and the conversation. We already know that this is not going to go well, and sure enough, as he goes on and on, it's we can tell this is just he's really bottoming out here with her, right? Um, You do feel for the it's kind of an embarrassment. Like, why aren't you recognizing yet that this is not going to work? And so you feel some sympathy. Then Scorsese does something interesting. The camera the cut. slides. Yeah. Well, it doesn't even it's, cut. It's It yeah, slides it the to the right away from yeah. De Niro and then settles mm-hmm. on a hallway going the other way that's completely empty. There's even an open door. Yep. And, and basically just like we've given up. She's given up on him first. You're we've all alone. given up you on really him. Are. And yeah, the camera, the camera itself has now given up on him. So I think there are some subtle things like that Scorsese does, because I was surprised that there wasn't as explosive as this material is. It's relatively reserved filmmaking from him. If you compare not Scorsese to other filmmakers, he's always more dynamic than most filmmakers. But if you compare Taxi Driver to a lot of his other films, I mean, there are flourishes here and there. Mm-hmm. overhead shots, those sorts of things. Um, but it's really reserved compared to a lot of his stuff. You get you get a little moment like that, or you get the one where how he reveals the infamous mohawk. Um, it's not with like a quick shot, a close-up. It's another camera slide, right? To slide across to bring Travis in the crowd into the frame from mm-hmm. the weight. He, we see his waist. So it slides over, then pauses, and then slides up to show us his head and the re- the reveal that he's really like this is this is hairstyle number three I think in the film first he has kind of a boyish normal cut then you can tell later he's begun to cut his own hair and it's it's not looking too good and then right. we we get this so so a lot of little touches like that that um, I noticed this time and the other thing I got to say about Scorsese though top five director cameo I mean I. He is so good in this scene because, and here's what jumped out to me, how scary he is as as this jealous husband stalking his wife at another man's apartment. Scorsese is not trying, there is some ugly, violent, taboo Mm -hmm. talk there, but unlike 
happens in a lot of, you know, Tarantino films, for example, Scorsese is not trying to be cool with the language at all. He just, no, he just embraces the ugliness of it. And it is a really effective, what, 45 one minute performance. Kevin, you see the light up there? The window? The light, the window up there in the second floor. The one that's closest to the one that's closest to the edge of the building. The light up in the window. Second story. What, are you blind? Do, do you see the light? Yeah. Yeah, you see it. Good. You see the woman in the window? Do you, do you see the woman in the window? Yeah. You see the woman? So I want you to see that one because that's my wife. But that's not my apartment. It's one of the best, most disturbing scenes in the film. And of course, noir was on my mind this week as we are going to talk about this gun for hire later in the show. And obviously, Taxi Driver is indebted to noir. But it occurred to me that that entire sequence could almost be its own film. That's its own Sure. Noir playing yeah. out, right? With the, the cuckolded husband and the man she's up there with and that whole illicit affair. So I found that fascinating. I always the find The silhouetted figures, right? Exactly, yeah. right? In in the shadow there, right? It, it definitely makes sense. But did you also catch, because I didn't catch this apparently back in 2011, that Scorsese, I think, has two cameos in the film. Yeah, he see, the first time, yeah, the first time we see Betsy, we notice him leering at her before we notice her. Yeah. Which is saying something because so, Sybil Shepherd is just dazzling in yes. in this movie. I mean, she's very funny, very quick as well um, in terms of her performances, but just such a dazzling contrast to the grime of life we otherwise get. So I was going to get into the score and some more of the filmmaking stuff. But as we're talking about the cast and how good some of the supporting players are, I mean, coming off just rewatching Silence of the Lambs, it's pretty striking to see for me how fully formed as an actress Jodie Foster was even at that age, because that's also a remarkable performance. Like there is an, an ease to that performance and an intellect to it, which you talked about in relation to Clarice that comes through that has nothing to do with sort of childlike precociousness. It's just not there in Foster's performance. And it's so good. So what are you going to do about supporting that old bastard? When? When you leave. I don't know, I'll just leave them, I guess. You're just gonna leave? Yeah, they got plenty of other girls. Yeah, but you just can't do that. What are you gonna do? What do you want me to do? Call the cops? Well, the cops don't do nothing, you know that. Hey, look, Sport never treated me bad. I mean, he didn't beat me up or anything like that once. But you can't allow him to do the same to other girls. You can't allow him to do that. He is the lowest kind of person in the world. Somebody's got to do something to him. He's the scum of the earth. He's the worst sucking scum I have ever, ever seen. You know, he told me about you. He's he calling you names. He called you a little piece of chicken. He doesn't, he, he doesn't mean that. She's so self-possessed. Um, the scene of the two of them in the diner, you know, talking about why she's why she's chosen this life as mm-hmm. much as she's had a choice. Um, yeah, and what twelve or thirteen 
when filming this. So um, again, we can talk about, you know, how, <laughs> is that such a great thing <laughs> as, as mm. good as she is in the movie, you know, that you would, um, you would want someone at that age in this, in this sort of part, but uh, certainly Foster had the talent um, to pull it off. It's, it's an incredible performance. Yeah, it really is. Now, the Bernard Herrmann score. Mm. The dissonance of the grimy, sleazy New York that we see and the the corruption of probably multiple characters, but certainly of Bickle in his own mind against the often lushness of that old Hollywood orchestration. Mm-hmm. It, it really is so startling and often jarring. And maybe it goes back to what Schrader was saying, that on some level, this really is a movie just about a man and his romantic problems. Or it could be about Scorsese and it's its own kind of twisted love letter to New York City in some way. But I really think it's that that ironic contrast, which also takes us, maybe we're not ready to get there yet, but to the end of the film and why I don't see it as a fantasy. But I'll talk here instead about the cinematography I mentioned and Michael Chapman. Those eerie, sickly greens really stood out to me this time as he drives the streets of New York City. And even from the very beginning in the credits where you get that blurry effect where it's Mm -hmm. almost like an impressionist canvas, a movie that is like most noirs, actually very expressionistic. But there's just this sense from the very beginning that there's going to be a complete distortion of reality with regard to how Travis perceives the world, including these fantasies where he sees himself as the romantic lead, you know, when he's out with Betsy, for example, and we get that score that kicks in. You mentioned the camera move when we see his, the Mohawk for the first time. It comes through that distortion of reality in all of the mirror shots of Travis, the reflections, the sudden camera pans. Again, there's a real intent here to jar the audience. You know, I'd never noticed this before either, but he mentions pretty early on that the rain is going to come and wash all this scum out. And not too long after, Scorsese draws our attention as he's driving to a fire hydrant shooting water right over the street. And as he's about to approach it, he has the wherewithal to roll up his window and to not get sprayed by it. You know, as if somehow he he's not going to be He's not going to be baptized by the street, if you will, or maybe this this stand-in for the rain, the water, isn't isn't going to get him. He's exempt from the rain in some mm-hmm. way, depending on your reading of it. But it's notable that while he might not get sprayed, his car does. And then the view out his windshield, Scorsese lingers on as he's looking at those New York City streets, and it takes a while for all that rain to go away and the blurriness to go away. That's that's the entire film and Travis's view of the world in a nutshell. Yeah, it's the most impressionistic shot is when the water is is rolling off the windshield and you see those lights. And t- as you talk about the green um, in Chapman cinematography and also I would say the red glow um, that we get in so many neon signs, it's almost like those signs um, which the movie associates a couple of times with a porn marquee, mm-hmm. porn theater marquee. It's like they've bled into the atmosphere somehow. And it's not just the signs giving off that light anymore. It's everything. And that's maybe how it feels in Travis's head. It's very different than uh, not too long ago, we discussed Paris, Texas, the Vin Vendors film. And Mm. the, the beauty of the neon signs in that movie 
it's there is beauty. There's a crispness and a clearness and a sharpness to it. And yeah. the, here Chapman takes the same material and gives it a luridness and an, inf- mm-hmm. an infectiousness that carries over into the entire rest of the film. And I would also say about the Herman score. Yeah, it's as you're describing it, it's it's like a split personality score, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. we have these yeah. we have these sexy, mournful saxophones, which would be very much of the period. It's, it's very 70s. Um, and then that's Travis's fantasy. And then we get our reality, the viewer's reality, which is where you hear those threatening suspense chords that that are reminiscent of uh, some of Herman's work for Hitchcock. I put it's mm-hmm. it was interesting the day after I watched this, I I put on um, I just chose Psycho and maybe maybe another Herman score is more reminiscent of of Taxi Driver, what we get here. But man, was there a lot of. Um, a lot of similarities there in listening to those back to back. We just get this, yeah, it's old Hollywood instrumentation, but also the threatening suspense yes. nature of it. So we've talked about Trader, mentioned Trader a couple of times. Uh, there's one thing about the script that I really want to highlight, um, which I just think is so clever uh, and has a lot of thematic resonance too. And it's it's the trail of the twenty dollar bill. And this is the bill that Harvey Keitel's sport throws at Travis Mm -hmm. to get him to leave when he yanks Iris out of the cap. The first time um, that he encounters sport, I think, and it lands on his seat. He looks at it with disgust because he's this is the first time he started entertaining these ideas of saving Iris. Right. She gets yanked out of the cab. He leaves it there, crumpled on the seat till he gets to the garage at night and then pauses and then kind of shoves it in his pocket. We see that bill again, I think. Three times later, I think he he almost pays for something once, but doesn't use it. He uses right. different cash. Still, it's crumpled up. At the coffee shop, he owes a guy some money, five bucks. So we see him pull that out next to the other cash he has. And then the last time we see it is when he rents the room with Iris, where he thinks he's going to convince her to leave. He's got to pay this guy to rent the room. And he, he mm-hmm. slams it in the guy's hand and running through all those make it seem like this really obvious heavy-handed symbol but maybe it is in the script but the way Scorsese kind of just lightly makes space for those moments makes it incredibly incredibly effective and yeah I I was just curious if that was in the original script and and if the versions I saw online are, are true it was I think that's a great touch well, it is a great touch, and it is subtle enough that I probably missed, I'm pretty sure I missed at least one of the times you mentioned, and it's not something I'd paid any attention to before on previous viewings, and yet this time, when he leaves it on the chair, you see how he considers the money in a close-up when it's thrown in in the first place, mm-hmm. and then when he gets back and he parks the cab, he has to make that decision, and as a symbol of, again, kind of his own corruption, but his sense of moral superiority, that he's he's yes. not going to take that money. But, of course, he also sort of, maybe, and this would be fitting for Schrader, it's almost like a cross he bears, right? It's that he's going to keep that $20 bill because it's going to be the reminder to him yeah. of, of what he's not. It's his token. What he hopes to not be. Yeah, it's his token in that way. I agree. It's a great screenwriting touch. So. Dana and I did talk about the ending in 2011, and it turns out my thoughts about it haven't really changed since then. In short, there is a reading of the film that suggests maybe everything that happens after the bloodbath is a fantasy. And there's different evidence people point to, including, you know, the overhead shot, which is almost like a a view from heaven 
it's been suggested there near the end. And then the fact that everything that happens and this, I totally agree with everything that happens after the police show up seems somehow a little bit tacked on false or maybe like a fantasy. You certainly see it in that exchange with Sybil Shepard when she gets in the cab. Mm -hmm. And that's something where it's definitely not clear from watching it that we are supposed to completely believe that she ever got in the car. There's something about the shot, reverse shot of him looking at her and us only seeing her in the rearview mirror. It's almost, again, like it's his perception. He's projecting her there in the backseat. That all said, where do you fall on that theory, Josh? So I think this takes us back to Chris Christopherson, actually, in that conversation, because one other question that we've touched on lightly, but is why did Betsy ever even agree to go get that cup of coffee with this guy? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's already kind of planting this seed of how much of his interaction with her is he imagining? Now, the movie toys with us because she gives him a reason and thereby gives us a reason. She says she's interested. She's intrigued by his contradictions. And that's what makes her think of the Christopherson song, The Pilgrim, Chapter 33. So we could tell ourselves that, OK, she's curious. Um, but I, I really think not everything, but a vast majority of what we see between Travis and Betsy is some sort of fantasy. And think of what he tells her at that in that conversation. He says he could tell she wasn't a happy person when he watched her talk to Albert Brooks. But we've been given, and I forgot how many scenes we got between Brooks and Shepard. We get like a fair amount of them. And every time we get one of them, they seem to be pretty happy. They have a rapport. They're flirty. They're like yeah. giving it back yeah. and forth to each other. His distorted view of the world. He's a threat. So he perceives those. Exactly. Differently. Exactly. So why, you know, she is, she seems to be a happy person. So, right. It's his, his distorted perception. Now, I don't think everything after the massacre is a, is a fantasy. Um, and this takes us to the top of our conversation. I, I think there's a very, there's some interesting commentary in the fact that, Travis is celebrated as the hero. Um, and I think it's more revelatory. We're living with that now, right? With the media mm -hmm. distortion of things makes it extra resonant today. But I do think that her getting in the cab is fantasy. And and yeah. here's here's why. And it's a very brief filmmaking touch. It's partly the look in the rearview mirror that you talked about where she seems like she's in this dream space. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's almost like we're not in the cab anymore, but we're into this portal to another dimension, Right? how the mirror frames her. But if you notice, there's a really weird moment. He drops her off on this leafy tree line, nice street, her home, we presume, and pulls away, watches her in the rear rearview mirror. And all of a sudden, he does a double take. The yeah. sound on the soundtrack actually distorts. It's almost like a record scratch. Mm -hmm. And he looks back in the mirror and the immediate next thing we see is not her leafy green street, but it's the neon soaked grimy streets that he usually drives down. And so right. I think that's the transition of he was just imagining that he was with another woman in another place and... In reality, he's right back where he had been at the beginning of the film. Yeah. So I think we're completely aligned. If you're suggesting that maybe some of the sequences with Shepard even earlier were fantasy, potentially, is that what you're saying? I would say his experience of it or, okay. you know, the way the way it's being presented is the way he's sort of seeing yes. it. Well, again, I'm completely aligned with him 
seeing the world completely differently than yeah. everyone else around him, including the people he's sitting across from. And I agree with you. I think that we're supposed to read that entire exchange in the cab at the end with Sybil Shepherd as a fantasy, but that doesn't mean everything that happens at the end is a fantasy. I do reject that, and I reject it, one, for the reason you said, which is there is a beautiful, profound irony in the way he is celebrated, which again comes back to this idea of the perception of reality, because it's very easy to just put what he did and to frame it the way the media does, which is, you know, vigilante rescues, mm -hmm. rescues girl and kills a pimp. You know, if you just look at it that way and you don't see what we saw or you don't know a little bit more about the situation and how disturbed Travis is, it's very easy to buy that narrative. Even the narrative that Iris's parents are probably selling to themselves, right? And isn't completely true about how she's assimilated back home and boy, she's been rescued. It's all tied up in this idea that the world misperceives what Travis did. Travis now sees himself falsely as a hero. And this idea of kind of a collective bloodlust where as Americans, we all go, well, damn right, they had it coming. So he did the right thing. If it's all a fantasy, then that commentary is completely watered down. And what else is watered down is the moment you spoke to at the end, which is that amazing punch of the, the grabbing of the rearview mirror, I think, right? And the jarringness of it. And all of a sudden, we're back to a certain reality. And I think that certain reality is coming back from the fantasy that he was just engaged in with Sybil Shepard in his back seat. But it's also this reality that any progress somehow that Travis seems to have made. Right. This idea that maybe by committing this act and being the Avenger has somehow now set him right with the world and he's no longer going to be a threat to society. We know in that moment with that cut and with the sound that that's not true, that Travis is still disturbed as he's ever been. And do you think maybe even like the letter from Mr. Steensma from uh, Iris's uh, father, which which seems to be kind of like a practice run for Schrader's hardcore, because I, I think that came a few years later and had a, a similar plot about a fa father going after his daughter, runaway daughter. But um, I wonder if even that is imagined because just because of the detail of the father making so many excuses about how we we can't come out to see you like we we don't have any more money. And it's almost mm. like he's inventing these reasons why these people won't actually interact with him because maybe they don't exist. Well, we saw earlier him writing a note that was mostly a fabrication to his parents. So yeah, right. I wouldn't put it past him to fabricate that letter paying tribute to him as a hero either. Taxi Driver is currently streaming on Netflix. It's available to rent on most platforms. For more on our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series, including previous and future reviews, visit filmspotting.net slash 7 from 76. So how do you milk a duck, Adam? That line, though, I'm afraid not the answer, can be found in This Gun for Hire. It's the next title in our 1940s noir marathon. We'll discuss when we come back, along with results from round one of Film Spotting Madness. Stay with us.
would you like to order? A Welsh rabbit with a poached egg on top, please. Not too runny. And bacon, scones, butter, cream, jam, not strawberry. What else? Are you a very hungry boy, Josh? <laughs> well, You're listening to film spotting. You know what I usually say when when I clean off everybody else's plates at dinner when they're done? I, I'm a growing boy, but you know, ah, hungry boy works too. Right. That's Daniel Day-Lewis, of course, with Vicki Krepsen, PTA's Phantom Thread, a film featuring some great performances, some great clothes, great music, a lot of top five potential here, Josh, and a couple of memorable meals. There's also a poisoning. We'll skip that for now. Next week on the show, we are planning to do our top five movie meals. This is somehow not a top five we've ever done in now almost 16 years of the show. We did do our top five food movies Back in August 2009, you were not yet a part of film spotting, Josh, but this is new territory other than me mentioning last year that there were at least five amazing foods I saw on screen. The five I most wish I was actually living in the movie world and wish I could be inhabiting that space with those characters sampling that food. So my mind is already in sync with this topic. This is where we're at at this point in the show, Adam. We we have to do sub top fives to previous top fives. That's right. To, to get new content. Well, it, it certainly won't be the last, Josh. Next week, we'll also be down to the Sweet 16 round of Film Spotting Madness Best of the 80s. More madness in just a bit. A couple of giveaway related notes. First, we wanted to announce the five winners of the Greenland Blu-ray giveaway. Greenland is the new disaster thriller starring Gerard Butler, Morena Bakarin, and Scott Glenn. It's about a man trying to keep his family safe as a planet-killing comet races towards Earth. This got a lot of positive buzz, Josh, and it's currently available on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital. We asked you a few weeks back to send us your favorite disaster movie for a chance to win one of those Blu-rays. And Josh, here are our five winners. Our first winner is Sean Guerrero, wrote in to say, frankly, one of my favorite disaster movies is 1997's Volcano. With its credible characters, first-rate special effects, and a few inside jokes for those familiar with L.A., it's really entertaining. And then, with it being surprisingly moving and emotional, thanks to some good performances, it's a disaster picture that is tastier than usual. Hmm. Volcano, a blind spot for me. Carrie Fervor in Tustin, California says, favorite apocalypse-slash-disaster movie, Armageddon. I remember the summer it came out and the whole Deep Impact versus Armageddon debate. I'm a big Aerosmith fan, so that gives Armageddon the edge. Oh, man. Sean Lynch here, another winner. Thought about Armageddon. Says, I would have to say as good as Armageddon is, I'll have to go with Avengers Infinity War. What an ending. And then we have Paul Nadeau in San Francisco who says, this is too easy. The best end of the world movie is, of course, Dr. Strangelove, but a close second is Melancholia and Josh... Josh Compton in Windsor, Vermont says, yeah, Melancholia is my top end of the world bummer. Congratulations to our five winners. Email us feedback at filmspotting.net with your address and we will get one of those Blu-rays sent out to you again. Greenland is currently available on DVD, Blu-ray and digital. 
We've got another giveaway going on, Adam. This one is for the new comedy action thriller Pixie. It stars Olivia Cook, Alec Baldwin, and Cole Meany. It's new this weekend on digital and on demand. Cook, who you probably remember from Sound of Metal, yes. plays a young woman who is intent on avenging her mother's death. She attempts a heist that will allow her to leave her small town life behind. When that goes horribly wrong, as these things as they always do tend to do. <laughs> Cook's Pixie and a pair of misfits go on the run from an organized gang of criminal priests and nuns. There's a twist for you. Okay, well, there. that's a new wrinkle, Josh. Organized gang of criminal priests and nuns is not a sentence I expected to say on air this week. We have five digital codes for Pixie to give away. All you have to do to enter is send us an email to feedback at filmspotting.net. Make the subject line Pixie. And then in the bottom of the email, tell us your favorite revenge thriller bonus points if it also includes an organized gang of criminal (laughs) priests and nuns that is feedback at filmspotting.net subject line pixie again pixie is out this weekend on digital and on demand it's rated r from paramount this week over on our sister podcast the next picture show it's hard water part one the 1986 french film jean de florette which they're pairing with the new Minari. Now, you called me out last week, asked if I'd seen Jean de Florette, got emails from many listeners saying, oh, you have to watch it. Josh, have you seen Jean de Florette? Of course not. (laughs) Okay. I was just trying to make you feel bad. Fair enough. (laughs) Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. There's more information over at nextpictureshow.net. So one way that you can support film spotting is to join the film spotting family over on Patreon. There's a lot happening, Josh. I mean, first, if you sign up, mere five bucks a month, you get ad-free episodes, you get early show downloads, you get monthly bonus episodes, And you get the opportunity to participate in our monthly trivia spotting. We have our eighth one coming up on March 19th. And in honor of that eighth installment of trivia spotting and in honor of film spotting madness, we're calling it trivia spotting 1984 because it will be an all 80s edition. Those tickets are now on sale exclusively to family members, except actually all the player tickets are sold out. There may be a few spectator tickets left, but. I'm excited about this one, Josh, because it's either going to showcase even more how much of my memory I've lost, or finally, (laughs) finally, I'm going to have a chance at winning because so far, no Adam-led team, yes, I did just go third person, no Adam-led team has placed, we have not even Mm. come in third in any of these tournaments, much to my chagrin, because you have, Sam has, and I've had enough. And I want to win. And the 80s might be my ticket. I know that's eating away at you, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, this could be this could be your shot, though. There's going to be stiff competition. I I would say a good portion of our audience, not entirely. We know we've got the 90s kids, love the 90s kids. But a good portion of our audience consists of 80s kids. I know our friend Wendy Fox Weber was already Mm -hmm. getting a little cocky on Twitter. A winner last time. She she wants she thinks she's going to repeat because the 80s were her era. So we'll see. It's going to be a stiff competition. Yes, it will. And what other movie podcast is offering you a Top Gun virtual watch party? Mm. Yes, actually, this Saturday. So depending on when you're listening, this is Saturday, March 6th. We will be having a film spotting virtual watch party. We're celebrating reaching over a thousand patrons. It's open to all family members. And, you know, if you've got the need the need to watch an awkward 80s sex scene with a bunch (laughs) of strangers, I think that's how the quote goes, then we're the place for it. 
So sign up now, patreon.com slash filmspotting. Take my breath away, Adam. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is madness. Well, this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! Oh, man, doesn't that drop just get you pumped up, Josh? So pumped up. Yes. <laughs> Can you see how excited I am? Yeah, I can. We're Film in round four, madness. right? This is the championship round. We're almost done. Uh, we might be just getting started, more oh. or less. Okay. And here we go. Very quickly for any newcomers. Film Spotting Madness is our seventh. It's it's only been seven, Josh. I know it feels like 70. <laughs> our seventh annual bracket style tournament. 64 movies. Only one survives. This year, it is the best of the 1980s. We've done the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s. Now... We're in reverse. Round two voting is currently live at filmspotting.net slash madness. That voting closes Monday the 8th. Monday, March 8th at 11 a.m. Central Time is your final opportunity to get your votes in for round two. Before we get to those round two matchups, Josh, let's talk round one results. We're going to go through these quickly. We're going to start with the ones that had the widest margin of victory. So really, no question here, never any doubt. These are all in the 90%. Blade Runner beat The Killer 92 to 8. Do the right thing over Wall Street. NYU grads pitted against each other. Oliver Stone and Spike Lee. Spike Lee took it decisively 90 to 10. And The Empire Strikes Back against poor Andre Tarkovsky and The Sacrifice 90 to 10%. All right. These wins were in the 80th percentile. Still pretty convincing. Back to the Future over Drugstore Cowboy, Raising Arizona over Agnes Varda's Vagabond, Aliens took out Manhunter, Raging Bull, Scorsese, still in this one, Adam, Raging Bull beat Ordinary People. Revenge. The sh- Revenge for the 80s Oscars, Josh. There you go. The Shining beat my beloved Gremlins, which handily I would feel worse about. Yeah, eighty-five percent to fifteen percent. Except, you know how I mentioned that that bunker in Norway where certain copies mm. of films go yeah. in madness. Adam, the the Gremlins are in charge, so okay, it's, it's all okay. okay. Ferris Fair Bueller enough. lives on. Beat the Big Chill, eighty percent to twenty percent. Also, with an eighty percent to twenty percent win, Raiders of the Lost Ark over Airplane. Now, wait, is this like? Mogwai style, or are you feeding them after midnight? Is this is this? I, I can't say. I can't say. Okay, fair enough. Now we get to the movies where the winners had at least seventy percent of the vote, and this was our biggest grouping: Spinal Tap over Elephant Man, E.T. over Moonstruck, seventy-eight percent to twenty-two percent. Full Metal Jacket, oh baby, put in that corner. Dirty Dancing, seventy-eight to twenty-two. Princess Bride takes down Brian De Palma's The Untouchables. Blue Velvet, another. Another crushing loss for you, Josh. Nightmare on Elm Street goes down to David Lynch's classic 76 to 24. Yeah, I saw that one coming. Amadeus, however, yeah. this is going to cause problems for our watch party for film spotting family members on no, Patreon. No, I ordered it from the bunker, from the Gremlins bunker. <laughs> okay, We're well, good. as I said, Gremlins are in charge. We'll see if it ever gets here. But Amadeus did beat Top Gun. Then we have The Terminator over Heathers, 72% to 28% for that one. Die Hard, this was one of those tough ones for me to choose, Adam. Die Hard over Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's the way I did end up voting. This is one that I got wrong in my predictions, Adam. Adam, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade beat Field of Dreams handily, yes. 71% yes. to 29%. I had that wrong. Did you predict that? I did. Okay, you got that one. Here's an mm-hmm. upset. I think this is our first upset, which 
if I'm understanding correctly, means that you had Fanny and Alexander seated higher when you and yeah. Sam made the bracket than yes. A Fish Called Wanda. That's not what ended up happening, though. A Fish Called Wanda wins 71% to 29%. Yeah. And for listeners who actually care about the minutia, Josh, you can tune out. <laughs> you can mm-hmm. you can leave the room if you want. Even identifying these as upsets in most cases is unfair because, first of all, we don't even tell listeners in the bracket what the seeds are. So they're irrelevant. And they're especially irrelevant when, in this case, the selection committee did decide that that film, Fanny and Alexander and Ingmar Bergman, had earned enough status that it belonged higher in the seating than A Fish Called Wanda. But if you asked myself or Sam, our producer, which movie would win, we both predicted A Fish Called Wanda and probably would have said at least 71% to 29%. So maybe not exactly an upset. Now, these were a little closer. The Thing over Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, 68 to 32. Others in the 60s, Ghostbusters over The Fly. My Neighbor Totoro over Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Stop Making Sense takes down Evil Dead 2. David Byrne's always going to beat zombies. And the right stuff prevails over the thin blue line, 60 to 40%. All right, things are getting a little tighter here. When Harry Met Sally beat Brazil by a score of 59% to 41%, Beetlejuice took out Grave of the Fireflies. I have here in the notes, Sam said this also an upset, but as you just eloquently described, that means nothing. 58% to 42%. Ron, the Kurosawa film took out Fast Times at Ridgemont High, 57% to 43%. And then Dead Poet Society beat Midnight Run. That won 56% to 44%. Okay, our final three here. The closest, Blood Simple, took down Paris, Texas. And this is also an upset because like Grave of the Fireflies, like Fanny and Alexander, Sam and I felt like Paris, Texas deserved higher seating. But film spotting listeners affection for the Coen brothers knows no bounds. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Blood Simple won. Despite our recent revisit and our bonus content and all the praise we had for Paris, Texas, this early Coen brothers effort wins 56% to 44%. The king of comedy took down broadcast news 54 to 46. And Josh, I know there's a ton of love for Marty Scorsese out there, rightfully so. I really thought broadcast news would win this one. I predicted that one incorrectly i also predicted this one incorrectly i really thought the crimes and misdemeanors the woody allen film would triumph over cinema paradiso Hmm. but no our closest battle cinema paradiso moves on to round two 52 to 48 so none that were nail biters the closest there a margin of four percent well you you underestimated your own influence there you usually you've always got to factor in the adam influence and well and you had just talked about cinema parody so what what top five was that not too long ago right i am not recalling which top <laughs> five it was josh <laughs> because again i have no memory but yes i even watched cinema parody so for the first time in That's order was. to consider yeah. it for that top five. And yeah, maybe I I swayed some listeners. Now, we had over 800 listeners submit bracket predictions. Two of them, only two, had perfect first rounds. 32 out of 32 right. Our congrats go to Matthew Emery. And I'm sorry, it says here someone named Sam Van Holgren. What? Now, wait a minute. Yeah. Here's yeah. who's pulling the levers behind the scenes the, here. This is this is where we've got to always ask the annual question. 
Yeah, the guy who made the bracket <laughs> predicted correctly 32 out of 32. Now, I'm going to say in Sam's defense, besides the fact that he's an incredibly upstanding, honest man, that he did submit his bracket to me well before okay. any of the voting started. In a, in a sealed envelope, did it arrive? Yes. yes. People in suits carrying a briefcase Price, handed it to you. Waterhouse sure. or someone. Yes, it was all it was all on the up and up. So we'll see how Sam does. The rest of Film Spotting Madness, they are obviously Sam and Matthew currently tied for the number one spot. And that means Sam is leading our internal bracket contest between myself, you, Sam, and Madness founding father, Mike Merrigan. Now, Josh, you did pretty well yourself. 30 of 32, correct? You're actually in eighth place overall out of 800. I'll take it. Not bad. Yeah. Now, Mike and I both got 29 of 32, correct? But because of how those incorrect picks impacted future rounds, I'm in 26th place. Mike is in 63rd. Mm. And I'm just going to say, I don't know how good the forecast looks for Mike Merrigan because he has a film winning it all that I don't think is going to get out of round two, Josh. Well, I don't know much about madness, but I, I think that would hurt him. So, yeah, I do as well. I can't wait to share those results next week. Now, apropos of nothing, I honestly thought that I had changed my vote. I initially put down Paris, Texas over Blood Simple. I thought listeners are going to remember us talking about it, and they're going to remember, if they've seen it, how amazing that Vin Vendor's film is, and it is going to take down the Coen brothers. And then I said, no, everybody loves the Coen brothers, as they should. It's going to win. But apparently, I didn't actually make the swap, Josh. So mm. I could have had 30 of 32, like you. Whatever you have to tell yourself to, to sleep better tonight, Adam. I screwed up. <laughs> We're just here to listen. <laughs> I think you might do better than me in this tournament. But Ooh. again, I just want to make sure I don't lose because I do not want to be assigned to watch an Adam Sandler Netflix movie. The Hustle, Hustling, Hustler, something like that. The Hustle, I think. The Hustle, okay. Okay, so then let's finally get to the round two matchups, Josh. And instead of dissecting all 16 of them, I thought we would approach it similarly to... The first round and the play-in round. Let's talk about the matchups that for us were the toughest. And as I did the voting, it turns out we're a top five show or a show that's been built around top fives over the years. I had a bunch that were pretty easy. Didn't have to hover too long with the cursor before I hit submit. A couple more that were maybe a little more challenging. And then I ended up with five where I actually still haven't voted yet. They mm. make me so mad. So what do you think of round two? I had three really tough ones. We'll see if we have any crossover here and I, I can help sway you. The first one was The Shining versus Fish Called Wanda, another incomprehensible pairing, another pairing that that just shows the ridiculousness of this enterprise. I had to, to come to a decision here, I had to apply Desert Island logic, yeah. and that's going to favor the comedies, right? Wanda, mm -hmm. I would watch over and over. I would laugh. And The Shining, not so much. So tough pick, but I did go with A Fish Called Wanda there. The other one, tough for me, The Terminator versus Ferris Bueller. This is about the fifth or sixth time since Madness has started, and even leading up to it, that I really kick myself for not revisiting Ferris Bueller because a movie I just loved. I, I don't know how long it's been since I've seen it. Just loved, wanted to be Ferris Bueller, watch the TV spinoffs, uh, I'm a little wow. worried. Yeah, I was committed. Little worried 
about how it looks in the broad light of middle age. So I've kind of resisted that over the years, but now I don't know what to do in voting because, you know, I've got that nostalgia factor, but I'm suspicious of it. I do like the Terminator. We revisited it not that long ago. Um, yeah, that's not what I heard. Talk about talk about awkward 80s sex scenes, though. That is. I know. <laughs> that does go against it. And so ultimately, I had to go Ferris here. I do love T2 even more. That helps, you know, when you've got another film. Now, no jokes. You are actually in your closet at home. That's where yeah. you record the show. Is that a leopard vest behind you? <laughs> Yes, I'm, I'm breaking it out. out? I'm, I'm breaking it out as soon as I get out of quarantine, Adam. The first thing I will wear in public. Can't wait. All right, one more tough pick for me here. Blade Runner versus Stop Making Sense. Here's how I thought about it. Stop Making Sense, top-tier concert film, right? At, at yes. the At the pinnacle, Blade Runner, tier 1A, sci-fi, I'm going to say. As good as it is, as much as I love it, tier 1A. So, no way of thinking about these two together this science fiction movie and this concert film. But if you think about them in terms of their genres, that helped me stop making sense it is. Okay. Well, we have some crossover here. Now, I had Terminator over Ferris Bueller, and I love Ferris Bueller's Day Off, or at least I historically have. I had that in my easy slash easier category, but the other two you mentioned made my top five toughest. The Shining versus A Fish Called Wanda is number five. You talk about the tiers, Fish Called Wanda, top tier, Tier one comedy Mm -hmm. versus The Shining for me, a top tier, top five horror movie of all time. And I think I applied similar logic to you. If it's the terror or the laughs, I want to be able to revisit. It's the laughs. Yes. Sorry, Kubrick. I'm going A Fish Called Wanda. My number three was Blade Runner versus Stop Making Sense. An incredible sci-fi neo-noir versus the best concert film ever made and similar logic to a fish called Wanda applied. I think I decided I could live without replicants, but I still needed David Byrne. So I went, stop making sense. Did you think at all about the fact that we have American utopia now that, that, you know, that might provide some consolation because that gave me right. pause. It wasn't mm. enough for me to go blade runner, but it did give me pause. Yeah, that is a fair point. And of course love Spike Lee. And that show was directed very well, but nothing's going to top Jonathan Demme and stop making sense to me. My number four was actually, I wonder where this stacks for you, Josh. My number four toughest choice actually was Akira Kurosawa's Ron Mm. versus Robert Zemeckis' Back to the Future. Yeah. Because obviously I recognize the cinematic achievement that Ron is. I love the film. And when I say cinematic achievement, I don't just mean, well... I appreciate how well it's made, but, you know, it's not that fun to watch. No, it's really fun to watch. It's a great film. But I also am a guy who grew up so loving Back to the Future that in two lip sync contests as a young boy, I put on a guitar and lip synced to Johnny B. Good from Back to the Future. Oh, why did we not grow up in the Instagram age, Adam? Then we could have visual evidence of this. Video exists. Oh, Wait a minute. We just found our new film spotting family on Patreon yeah. goal. When we hit 2,000 patrons. Uh, no, 20,000. Adam, Adam will release the tapes. <laughs> 20,000. I'll release the tapes. And I'm still going back and forth, but I actually think this is one where I'm not going with the more obvious choice or the more entertaining one. I think I'm good with Marty McFly. I think I'm going to keep Kurosawa around. I'm going Ron. I'm guessing you went Zemeckis. 
Yes. And okay. here's where the nostalgia factor, which is very crucial for us in this madness being in the 1980s, it really helped me out because those films that I loved to the degree that you did when I was that age, I revisit over and over as an adult and find not only hold up, but were smarter, more observant, mm -hmm. dare I say philosophical than I ever had any hint of um, as a kid. Then I'm going to give it credit, not just being for a nostalgia pick, but for, for being its own genuine work its own cinematic achievement. I mean, it's, it's yeah. looks completely different than Ron, but has its own sort of originality as well that, yeah. uh, this actually wasn't that tough for me. Okay. Well, my number two, maybe the greatest action movie ever made die hard versus again, in the conversation for greatest comedy ever made raising Arizona and sorry, John McClane, but I went with laughs again and I went with the Cone brothers raising Arizona, the number one for me though. And here's where the nostalgia factor certainly comes in though. It's not as if the Philip Kaufman movie, the right stuff can only be appreciated on a nostalgic level, but a movie that had a profound impact on me as a kid. And that I still think is a masterpiece going up against a movie that I think has a reasonable shot to win this entire tournament. Spike Lee's do the right thing. And I did go against seven-year-old me i killed seven-year-old me wow and went with went with do the right thing josh that is kind of a shocker to me i need more i need what pushed you over the edge to to commit that atrocious act no see if you make me think about it more then i'll get really unhappy so i want to move on i'm a little worried now that you think do the right thing is gonna it has a chance at taking this I'm worried about my well, I'm worried about my prediction. I'd love to see it. Trust me. I, I think I've ha I've had that for years on my top ten films of all time list, but mm. I, I don't think I predicted it would go that far. No, though I think I have it. I think I have it in the final four. So we will see. Now, in terms of easiest, real quick, Raiders of the Lost Ark taking down Cinema Paradiso, The Princess Bride. Yeah, easy one for me over Tim Burton's Beetlejuice and Amadeus. I know how many people love When Harry Met Sally, but. You heard us talk about that Milos Forman film, that masterpiece of the 80s as part of our 8 from 84 series. And Amadeus was definitely not a tough choice for me, Josh. Any other matchups that stood out to you either as the easiest or maybe the toughest to predict? Yeah, I think um, the one that really is hard for me to wrap my mind around how others might vote is E.T. versus Spinal Tap. Mm -hmm. I've got to take myself out of it because as right. much as I appreciate Spinal Tap, to me, E.T. is in another universe of filmmaking. So I got to remove that. And then I'm trying to think, you know, here, here's the Adam influence again. You talk about Spinal Tap every other show. I, mm -hmm. I don't know if we've talked about <laughs> E.T. five times in the time no. I've been on the show. So I've got to factor in that. But there's also the nostalgia question of how many of our listeners saw E.T. for the first time as children in the 80s. And does it hold that over them? Then again, Spinal Tap's probably been revisited more by people than E.T. It's got the comedy Maybe. going for it. So I I have no idea where to go on this one in terms of predictions. Yeah, and I actually, right now, I know I have looked at the voting fairly recently, but I don't know where it stands. I will say this. I, as I was looking at the bracket and having to fill out my predictions, there was a moment, Josh, where I was sure that it was going to come down to a Steven Spielberg final and it was going to be Raiders of the Lost Ark against DT. Oh, really? Or 80s supremacy. Huh. And I'm just going to say right now, based on what I do know about how the voting's going, that I'm glad I didn't. 
because I think I was overestimating, perhaps, somehow, the adoration for E.T. Not that mm-hmm. anybody has an unkind thing to say about it. I just think there are some other amazing titles in Film Spotting Madness that might prevail over E.T. before we get there. We'll see. I think th- this could be one that kind of breaks my bracket, depending on how this one falls. Okay, well, for me, the two that were the toughest to predict, and only one of these is bearing out, I really wasn't sure how listeners were going to go on Full Metal Jacket over Aliens. So this is great. Brett Merriman, again, getting invoked on this show, mentioned to me when we were texting each other that obviously Sam and I thought about these two as very sort of masculine, you know, war movies. But James Cameron actually called Aliens his Vietnam movie. So we've got James Cameron's Vietnam movie against Stanley Kubrick's Vietnam movie, Full Metal Jacket. I really thought Kubrick might be a deciding factor here. So far, James Cameron and Aliens is is doing okay. The other one, and this one really is close. I knew that my beloved Blue Velvet from David Lynch, a Pantheon film here at Film Spotting, would be in a tough battle against John Carpenter's The Thing. And right now, Josh, it's really close. Yeah, I need that one, that one to go my way. I didn't know... See, what you're weighing against there are almost like two different cult fandoms in yeah. a way that also have some crossover. I think that's the hard thing. It's like you'll probably find a lot of huge fans of both filmmakers. So trying to predict which way they're mm-hmm. going to go on that matchup is a head scratcher. Well, we want to know which ones you thought were the toughest. You can write in, call us monsters. We're used to it. We can take it. Voting in round two of Film Spotting Madness Best of the 80s is live. Vote. Leave those comments at filmspotting.net slash madness. Again, the voting closes Monday, March 8th at 11 a.m. Central Time. At noon, the Sweet 16 voting will start. And we remind you that members of the Film Spotting family on Patreon get a first shot at the polls. Then our subscribers to the Film Spotting newsletter, patreon.com slash filmspotting and filmspotting.net slash newsletter. It's lucky they sent you today. By tonight, this would have been on its way to Washington. That would have been just too bad for your boss now, wouldn't it? Especially the little uh, prescription. I'm even willing to forgive your boss that nasty little word, blackmail. So then, here you are, and uh, the money, please. The gunshot and that music should tell you we're back to our 40s noir marathon. This week, the second movie in that marathon, 1942's This Gun for Hire. The reference to Washington in that clip is a clue to the movie's wartime espionage plot. Something, Josh, about a secret formula and a corrupt chemical company selling that secret formula overseas to an enemy of the United States. But of course, bit of a red herring. That's just backdrop to the crime story, which has Alan Ladd as a cold-blooded contract killer, Robert Preston as a straight-shooting police detective, and Veronica Lake as Preston's fiancé and also a nightclub performer who somehow becomes... A government spy. Did I did I get all of that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot packed in here. You you didn't there mention is. the CEO of the chemical company, Tully Marshall, who rolls around in in this like futuristic <laughs> wheelchair, I right? Mean, Whispering commands and doing nefarious things. This is definitely a noir, but it's also a, a strange little movie. Yeah, it is. So I want to hear how strange and how much fun it was for you, and I guess I want to hear about your take on the pairing 
of Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. Veronica Lake already making a name for herself, fairly well known in Hollywood at this time, as I recall, I think only around 20 when this movie came out, but it only had one real starring role opposite Joel McRae in Preston Sturgis's Sullivan's Travels, I think the year before. But you have Alan Ladd, who'd really done a lot of work in Hollywood at that point, but had never had a chance to really break out until he played Philip Raven here in This Gun for Hire. Great name. They went on to make three more movies together. This movie was popular enough that audiences were clamoring for more Ladd and Lake. Were you? Well, I think Lake should be very glad she had Ladd. This is perhaps unfair. Oh perhaps unfair <laughs> because oh no. we have just done a Betty Davis marathon. I've been working uh, with the family through Joan Crawford films and man, Veronica Lake, uh, yes, needs to be thankful to Ladd. She needs to be thankful to Edith Head, who provides some gowns here, designed some gowns that match, you know, the long lines of, of her hair, her famously cascading hair. She should be thankful to her hair as well, because I was <laughs> so underwhelmed with her oh in my. this movie, Adam. And I loved her. As... The moment she showed up in her first scene, which is a dance number, her movements are just so incredibly stiff. The singing, it's lip sync. So I suppose, I believe it's lip sync. You can't really blame her for that, but there just was not much there. Now, to your point about them co-starring later together, when she gets finally in a scene with Lad, it's amazing how much her eyes come alive how much her words gain an edge that had a flatness mm -hmm. in every other scene. And, and the two of them absolutely have something. For me, the discovery of this was at, was Lad. Uh, I'm not familiar with a lot of his work. And I had no idea, Adam, very aware that the French filmmakers of the 60s drew on these sort of films for inspiration, the 30s and 40s. But Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Samurai and mm -hmm. Alain Delon as the main character, the hitman in that film. I mean, this is not an homage. That What they did in that film, which, let me be clear, La Samurai is a better film than This Gun for Hire, but what they did is pure theft. I mean, absolute theft in the portrayal of this loner assassin from the smoldering stare Lad gives to the trench coat to the fedora, the entire persona. It's Delon is like this reincarnation of Lad. Mm -hmm. They look so yeah. similar. Uh, and again, I'm not holding that against Le Samurai, but it was just this wow to me is to experience Lad who had absolute charisma in every moment. He's he, he's ridiculously handsome and still is a statue throughout this thing. So you could just gaze at him. You know, you can just keep looking at him because he's not going to move and distract you. He, he says things like, I'm my own police in a way mm -hmm. that every noir character should say anything yeah. ever. And how about the moment he's on the run, he hides in a phone booth and he has a gun pointed at a woman in the phone booth. He's kind of crouched down, the woman played by Pamela Blake. While she's making a call, he's forcing her to make this fake call so people don't notice. They, Lad and Blake together, they make it tense, but it's not terrifying that the closeness they bring hints at the erotic. I mean, without Lad, this movie would be a curiosity rather than, you know, just the, the absolute noir thrill that it is. Yeah, the fact that there are any hints of the erotic in this film whatsoever is ironic because the defining trait of Raven's character is that he really doesn't seem to have any actual interest in women whatsoever, mm -hmm. you know, and this is a 
common noir trope that there's an uneasiness about women, there's an insecurity about the men, there's a confusion about women and their roles, and obviously the whole dynamic with femme fatales. And here you have a character who isn't just a little confused, he hates women. But before we really get into all of that psychology, Josh, we're going to go back to the heresy about <laughs> Veronica Lake. because tell, tell me what she did for you. Here's what, here's what I've learned about you. You wait, I thought this, I thought this was going to be about Veronica Lake. No, I'm going to, I'm going to start with you. (laughs) You in another life, or maybe just down the road are going to have a future on dancing with the stars because you're the judgiest person about dancing. I know. Mm. And I enjoy it. It's one of the things I love about the movies. So it bothers me when, when it's not entertaining. I, I get it. I get it. But Veronica Lake does dance, in fairness, for all of about four minutes of this film. So I think maybe somehow you hated it so much. And here's the thing, Josh. She's really bad at dancing. Like, I had it in my notes, too. There's a stiffness, an awkwardness. She has two numbers. I mean, yes. She has two numbers. It's not like this is, you know, Astaire and Rogers and the movie is built around them. But her character is built around them. Her presence is built Mm. around them. These, This is supposed to be... Uh, like Rita Hayworth in Gilda, like when no. when she comes out to dance, the movie is supposed to say, "Wow, I, I disagree." And you know what it I says? Dis- I disagree. Wah. Yeah, it it does. I agree with you on that. And I'm not saying that it's intentionally supposed to be a bummer or bad, but I really think it's as much of a red herring as the the chemical formula. Like that's that's not in any way what her character really is about. I agree with you again. She can't dance. Those scenes are rough. Though I am sympathetic considering all of the equipment and tricks she's trying to navigate while singing and dancing. Let's see your beloved Channing Tatum do that. Huh? <laughs> We're, let's see him oh. actually let's see Magic Mike actually do Channing magic. Channing Tatum Josh. would look great in that black vinyl fisherman, fisherwoman get up uh-huh. she dons in the, in the I think I've seen one. that one. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but here here's what I'll say. Count me among the viewers who in nineteen forty two would have watched this film and just said I need more Lad and Lake in my life. Yeah. I need them in everything together. together. And they're I great. think it's 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 not a lack of charisma or a lack of talent on her part. I do think there's a lack of effort on screen that I love and really responded to. You actually used the word I had here in my notes to talk about Lake when we were talking about Taxi Driver and Jodie Foster. Completely different performers, but it's how self-possessed Veronica Lake is in this movie. Hmm. I think she's a fully formed screen presence and as a character she is someone who suggests she's been around the block she understands the game she's playing but she's neither the femme fatale nor is she the safe naive romantic interest there's there's something in between that lake straddles really convincingly and i think it makes her really magnetic on screen i will agree with you that of course she does really shine when she and alan ladd are together that that I'm with you on, Josh. And of course, the Alain Delon comparison is completely accurate, though it's been a while since I've seen Le Samurai, but I think Jeff in that film is even less expressive than Ladd is. And and Ladd's pretty emotionally vacant here, right? Like he's yeah. almost robotic in the way he says certain things. It's as if he's been programmed to be a killer and he only knows that mode, but he will lash out as he does with that housekeeper early on or of course josh and how sensitive he is with the cats because Mm. he he loves cats because they don't need anybody they're loners (laughs) like him and as kind of cheesy as that was i do kind of like the way it comes around and the contradiction that lake's character 
calls him out on, which is that, you know, he says cats don't need anyone except the cat that keeps coming to his window, right? And, and needs the milk or the cream that he pours. And the cat there in that scene that cozies up to him, I think she says like, well, this one clearly needs a friend, but you're right. As, as stunning as Veronica Lake is, that's how handsome Alan Ladd is. But when he has to deliver what in some cases is pretty schlocky dialogue, like when he has to explain his whole history yeah. and why he feels about women the way he does, it's all not his fault. Well, he navigates that about as well as I think any actor could. I read somewhere about a, about a kind of a doctor, a psycho something. If you tell your dream, you don't have to dream it anymore. That's right. You, you wouldn't laugh if I told you, would you? It's a woman. I dream about a woman. She used to beat me. Took the bad blood out of me, she said. My old man was hanged. My mother died right after that, and I went to live with that woman. My aunt. Beat me from the time I was three till I was 14. Yeah, he, he retains just enough stoicism even as he's, you know, doing what this character never would do, spill his guts in that scene in a way, in an explanatory way. But the, but they, they've got heat in that moment. That's when they're boxed yeah. in by police in this um, in this train yard, in this uh, rail car. And, you know, that sequence also, as long as I'm talking about homages and ripoffs and copying and stealing, you know, this movie is doing some of its own in that chase sequence where it almost recalls something like um, like Metropolis or, or a German expressionist masterpiece with the way it has these dark shadows in the factory or once we get out into that foggy rail yard that they're being chased through. The cinematographer here is John Seitz. So it's just, it was fascinating to watch this movie for me and think about these ideas of when movies borrow from other movies and other traditions and other genres and what they do with it. You know, I'm kind of joking about the Tully Marshall CEO who's in this wheelchair like like a supervillain. But mm-hmm. you can see also in that outfit, even that outfit that Lake dons, the vinyl fisherwoman outfit is like something Catwoman <laughs> would wear. And, and so there's like a comic book noir vibe going on here, too. It actually made me look up and Catwoman showed up in 1940 in a Batman comic. So this is something that's in the air that maybe even Edith Head or the the filmmakers or whoever bring into into a movie like this Gun for Hire. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mention Fritz Lang and Metropolis because I think you could also point to another Fritz Lang film, which is M, which actually has a lot of its action taking place in those underground corridors, right? And all of these shadows where these criminal types are, are lurking and lingering. But it's funny, we paired this with Taxi Driver on this show, really just because it was an obvious neo-noir, noir combo. Famous line, the most famous line from Taxi Driver as he's holding the gun, you talking to me and this movie, this gun for hire, really nothing more thoughtful than that. But often serendipity will strike. And I really think it's fascinating, actually, Josh, to compare Taxi Driver and this gun for hire. And we can look at their degrees of fatalism. I think, you know, Taxi Driver is a movie that's being made and being released in the wake of a war, the Vietnam War, a disillusioning one. And accordingly, the lines of right and wrong are really blurred. There's nothing comforting about the film, only kind of disturbing. And then you watch This Gun for Hire coming out in 1942, and it's basically war propaganda. You have Veronica Lake at one point delivering 
a mini lecture on not being selfish and sacrificing for the war effort. You know, Travis Bickle did his time in the military, right? It's alluded to. He was a Marine, honorably discharged in 1973. And you have Alan Ladd's character, who's that loner who won't do anything for anybody, even if probably in Travis's case, he didn't really have a choice. But because it's this movie that is promoting the war effort, it ends on a more hopeful note. And it's more triumphant. Love triumphs. Of course, being 1942, the stable family unit is reinforced, right? In terms of Robert Preston and Lake coming together, traitors are revealed and they're punished. And the country at the end of this gun for hire is safe. It's all very, it's all very reassuring. Again, as I said, in sharp contrast to Taxi Driver, it's also fascinating to compare those disturbed outsider antiheroes, both of whom define themselves by their missions, right? Travis ultimately deciding on his goal, I'm going to kill Palatine. And what do we hear Lads Raven say multiple times? Like, I've got a job to do. I've got a job to do. And that's all, all he's focused on. But, you know, you look over the course of these two noirs, Travis is coming from a place where he's obviously disturbed, but the sociopathic tendencies haven't, haven't come through yet. We see them evolve over the course of the film. He devolves into madness and despair, and he's going to assert his individual identity on the world. Raven's arc is exactly the opposite. He, he goes from a character who is overwhelmed by madness and despair and that sense of his individuality being more important than any kind of collective to then actually at the end serving the larger collective. Like there's there's a sense of sacrifice and redemption that comes in this film that ultimately makes it, as I said, a little bit hopeful in a way that something like the neo-noir taxi driver isn't interested in at all. And there's no redemption for Travis. Well, and he's also, Raven is also punished. You know, he gets his punishment in the end as well. well. He has so, to, right? He's yeah. going to be redeemed, but only because he sacrificed. Yeah. It hits all those yeah. notes. I think it, it, thinking about them in tandem, it, I would probably say that what is taxi driver's strength is this psych, the psychology that we get in that film and the richness of it is maybe this gun for hire's weakness. Going back to that scene you were mm -hmm. talking about where it's kind of just dumped on us as good right. as Lad is giving a very different kind of performance, obviously, than De Niro. The psychology is kind of dumped on us in that one scene. So maybe not its strongest moment. Yeah. And I just wanted to go back real quick to the gas works and what you were talking about in terms of the cinematography, those imposing structures that we see that are just by sort of the nature of the way we see them shot are dehumanizing and make these characters feel very kind of small mm -hmm. and everything is futile. And yet maybe the best bit isn't when it's showcasing the structure and the grandness of it, but it's in that conversation that happens with Lake and Lad where they're just sitting on the stairs and they they're admitting things to each other. And Lake's face is pretty much bathed in light as dark as it is we get to see all of veronica lake's face his face is bounded by shadows or you have multiple shadows going across his face and the stairs and the railings and all these perpendicular lines of the structure but also the lighting the parallel and perpendicular lines all come together to just make it seem like they're completely enclosed like they're trapped mm -hmm. he's already in a jail of some kind there so there really is some great work here and i'm not surprised that this movie in reading just a little bit about it ended up being as influential as it was like it feels like an early noir in a lot of ways it feels like one of the movies that was helping to define 
a lot of the tropes or establish a lot of the tropes, not one of the movies that was just relishing in all of the tropes. Well, and, and certainly, as I said, had an impact on on those French filmmakers later on, decades later. Mm-hmm. And even something like the that Gasworks, as you're describing it, is very much like um, the factory in Tim Burton's Batman, where you know yeah. where where Joker falls into the vat. So, so yeah, really fascinating. Watch this Gun for Hire, and this Gun for Hire is currently available to rent on most platforms. Next up in our 40s noir marathon, Otto Preminger's Laura with Gene Tierney and Dana Andrews. That's in a couple of weeks now, Josh. I know there's at least one of the movies in the marathon you have seen. Is it Laura? No, this will be new to me. Okay. I am going to be in for a treat when I start the movie, and I'll see whether or not I've seen Laura before. I did take, a hundred years ago, a hard-boiled America fiction and film class, and we watched a lot of stuff, some that I know I've forgotten over the years. Laura might have been on the list, but... We'll find out. I'm eager to see it. Filmspotting.net slash marathons is where you can find more on our Noir Marathon, plus all of the conversations we've had over the years. I think we are on something like our 45th marathon at this point. So a lot of films that we were catching up with as blind spots, and they might be blind spots for you as well. And Josh, that's our show. If you want to keep the conversation going on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives over at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can vote in round two of Film Spotting Madness, Best of the 80s. Log your votes on the website. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter out on digital this weekend. Amazon Prime has Coming to America. Yes, that's the sequel to the 80s classic Coming to America starring Arsenio Hall and Eddie Murphy. Have you seen the new one yet, Josh, or have you only revisited the original? So just watch the new one today. I'm going to say I enjoyed it probably more than I should have. And probably because I just did watch the original for the first time like last week and was a, a little tentative about what I would get. It's fun. Coming to America, yeah. their first yeah. coming to America. That, that's one of the Eddie Murphy movies I, I never had a chance to see. Wasn't on the approved list in my house, Adam. Didn't manage to sneak a peek Wait at a the second. neighbors ever. So Wait, I'm sorry, stop. I just want to be clear. You're saying this watch was the first time you've the seen first Coming to America? time. Hey, Come on. Hey, we didn't all have HBO in our bedrooms <laughs> at the age of four, Adam. Sorry. Well, you know, no need to apologize, Josh. <laughs> so also out this week is Raya and the Last Dragon. It's available on Disney+. Plus. Our friend Brian Tallarico from RogerEber.com, who participated in our last trivia spotting, calls it an ambitious family film that will work for all ages and one that never talks down to its audience while presenting them with an entertaining, thought-provoking story. Josh, this sounds right up your alley. Yeah, I'm going to have to catch up with this one. What about Chaos Walking in limited release? I had never heard of this until I think yesterday was the first time I saw something about it. And look at the cast. It's insane that this has seemingly been hidden. Yeah. Daisy Ridley, Tom Holland, Mads Mikkelsen, Cynthia Erivo, Doug Lyman directed. Our producer Sam notes that it's not a good sign that the embargo has been kept in place until opening day. No, it never is. Our friend Edwin Arnoden, a listener and critic in Asheville, North Carolina, has seen it, lived to tell about it, tells us that chaos walking is not great but I'd love to read Charlie Kaufman's initial draft. Okay. Also out in limited release. Finally, people could see a movie that we both gushed over. One that I love so much. I put it in my top six films of the year. I think the truffle hunters, the documentary about the men in Northern Italy 
who spend their lives hunting truffles. The delicacy, it will make you so hungry. It made us so hungry, we decided to devote a top five to it, basically inspired by the truffle hunters. We're going to share next week on the show our top five movie meals. Yeah, I put out on uh, Twitter and Facebook some requests for listener picks, and I'm already regretting this list because I'm just going to be I'm going to be hungry from now until yeah. we're done recording that show. Just getting this f- constant stream of great meals in movies. Now, spoiler alert: the meal that's not going to make my top five: Taxi Driver's apple pie with cheese on top, mm. or Sybil Shepherd's fruit salad at the diner. Who yeah. orders fruit salad? At a diner. Well, and you know, the conversation as well, Adam, kind of kind of ruins that meal. Yeah, fair enough. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffith and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. I should get one of those signs that says one of these days I'm going to get organized. You mean organized? For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.